<clears throat> One, two, three. As we continue to worship by looking into God's Word, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. This is the story of Jesus and his interaction with the rich young ruler. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your truths. We ask that your word would go forth now and accomplish your purposes for each of us. Speak to us through your word. Challenge us, convict us, reveal to us Jesus Christ. Help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to follow his instructions. Help us to always to, to choose his ways. And God, build up your church through the proclamation of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a young Christian, I remember hearing various preachers on the radio or maybe reading in Christian books on basically how easy it was to become a Christian. Maybe you might have heard some similar things when you were a young believer. And they said that basically all you have to do in order to be saved is simply to believe in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus, accept Jesus, receive Jesus. You don't have to do anything. All you need to do is receive Jesus. Just believe in him. And one was given the impression that basically it is easy to become a Christian. And while this is true in a sense, that salvation is, is simple in the sense that it is through faith alone, in Christ alone, if we read the Gospels as well as the teachings of Jesus Christ, Jesus doesn't often put it that way. Rather than saying that salvation is easy, he often speaks of how hard it is. It is hard to become a Christian. We had read earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, that Jesus said that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Some Christians, some uh, scholars have tried to get around these hard demands uh, by basically teaching that uh, Jesus is addressing uh, or speaking about another level of, Christian, of Christianity. They're like, like a video game, there are two levels. There's easy and hard. There's the easy, the regular Christian route, and then there's the hard, the disciple Christian route. They believe that when Jesus speaks these words, he's calling uh, the 12 to go beyond regular Christianity and become a, a disciple kind of Christian. A class of Christians who are simply more committed and more devoted to following Jesus. Sometimes the difference is spoken of as, as basically one having received Jesus as Savior versus one having received Jesus as Lord. But what we find in the Gospels is that Jesus calls everyone to this hard level of Christianity, this kind of Christianity that Jesus speaks about. 
In Luke 14, 26 to 27, Jesus speaks similar to the large crowds that were following him. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What's more, when he asked if, there, how, if, if it's basically many people are getting, going to be saved or a few are going to say, basically, is it going to be easy or is it going to be hard? Jesus answered in Luke 13, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, and will seek to enter and will not be able. You see, the door to salvation or other, elsewhere, talks about the gate to salvation, is a narrow one that many people are going to seek to enter who will not be able to. They will not be able to find it because it's a narrow door, a narrow gate. According to Jesus, the way to salvation is a hard way. It's a difficult path. It is not easily found. It is not easily followed. And I wonder when we kind of come across these kind of passages and I, when we study the, what God, Jesus calls of us, I wonder, is it possible that there are some among us who think that they are on the way to salvation? They have accepted Jesus or received Jesus and believed or say they believe Jesus, but instead are on the path to destruction. Today's passage and much of Jesus' teaching as we've been studying, causes all of us to faithfully and continually examine our own hearts, to examine whether we are genuine followers of Christ. This passage begins with a genuine question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus replies, for all to hear and understand. And his words are for us to understand today. Do you understand what it means to inherit eternal life or what, it is, what is required to inherit eternal life? In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been preaching and teaching much on the kingdom of God, how one might enter into it. And he taught, he taught and particularly in the early part of chapter 18, that those who are enter the kingdom of God are going to have a persistent, humble, and dependent faith upon him, upon God alone, to save his instruction has challenged many of the religious views of the Israelites. And perhaps this morning they will challenge many of your religious views as well. Among the crowds of those who are listening to Jesus' instructions is a young man. He's a rich young ruler. In his words with Jesus and Jesus' subsequent words with the disciples, we learn today the answer to the question that he's going to ask. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And we can break this down, this passage down into two points or two truths that must be understood for those who wish to inherit eternal life. Do you wish to inherit eternal life? Do you wish to be saved? Do you wish to have uh, your sins forgiven and to be in the presence of God forever? Do you wish to know your creator and God? Then these are two truths that you need to understand these big picture truths that we can glean from our pastors this morning. In point number one, the first truth that you must understand if you want to inherit eternal life are the demands of inheriting eternal life. In Jesus' exchange with this rich young ruler, 
we can observe three demands. Three demands. And the first demand is to acknowledge who Jesus is. Acknowledge who Jesus is in verses 18 to 19. We read now in the scriptures, Luke 18, verse 18 and 19. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. There are parallels to this whole passage uh, found in both Matthew, Matthew 19 and 20, as well as Mark chapter 10. But Luke identifies the man as a ruler here, probably some civic ruler. Matthew tells us that he was a young man, but all three tell us that he was rich. So often he's called the rich young ruler. So if you think about it, here's a guy that every ministry, every church would love to have as part of their ministry. He's a rich young ruler. The potential for him to make a difference for the kingdom, you can imagine. But on top of it all, this man is a sincere seeker. He's genuine. He's not like the scribes and Pharisees who come with the questions to, to seek to entrap Jesus. He, he comes with a question that genuinely wants to be answered. He wants to know. Mark tells us this man actually runs up to Jesus, kneels before him, and then asks his question. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice the man calls Jesus good teacher. This was a, a rare, an uncommon address for a rabbi. It indicated this man's high view of Jesus, that he's a good teacher. In Judaism, good was often used only of the law or of God, not man. So it was a form of a sign of respect. And though he had a high view of Jesus, Jesus understood that this man's view of him was not high enough. Jesus doesn't say an answer to his question. Well, it's easy. All you have to do is believe in me and you will be saved. Instead, Jesus' challenge to this rich young ruler is to first and foremost acknowledge who Jesus is. Jesus replies, why do you call me good? It's a challenge almost. Why do you call me good? You think, <laughs> uh, it was like he's trying to honor the Lord, but then Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus' question challenges this man's superficial use of the word good in this way. The man clearly saw Jesus as good in relation to the other teachers of the day. However, would he acknowledge Jesus as being good in the absolute sense where God alone is good? See, God alone is good and man, everything else, including man, is not good, is evil in comparison. Would this rich young ruler acknowledge that Jesus is more than just a good teacher and instead is God who alone is good? Most likely, even though we don't see the response of this rich young ruler immediately, we, he, he probably did not. Because if he did acknowledge that Jesus was God, he wouldn't have responded to Jesus' next two demands the way he did. For anyone who does not acknowledge Jesus for who he is, that he is God and God alone, cannot gain eternal life. Paul writes of this in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Lord can simply mean master. 
But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, God's name, Yahweh, wherever it's translated in the Greek Old Testament, it was always translated with the word that's used here, Lord. So to confess Jesus as Lord is to confess Jesus as God, Yahweh. Before the man can answer, Jesus moves on to the second demand. He challenges the rich young ruler not only to acknowledge who Jesus is, but to admit your sinfulness. Admit your sinfulness. And we see this in verse 20 to 21. Jesus then moves on. He says, you know the commandments related to what's good. God's good. God is good. So you know God's law is good too. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, that is the rich young ruler, all these things I have kept from my youth. See, if God alone is good, then that means that everyone else is not good, right? But yet, many human beings, many people think that we're good because we compare ourselves to other human beings. And in comparison to other human beings, yes, some of us are, are known for our good deeds. Some of us are, are, are being just good folks. But God's word says that in comparison to him, that the heart in the heart of every person is evil and sin. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, every human being has been conceived and born a sinner. The Old Testament teaches the sinfulness of man. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. The New Testament teaches the sinfulness of man. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, God gave the law to Israel in order to teach them of their sinfulness. That's what Jesus wants this man to admit of himself, that he was a sinner. So Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments. He quotes particularly the latter half of the, of the Ten Commandments, the laws five through nine, laws that basically emphasize the call for the Israelites to love their neighbor. Remember, the law, all of the law is summarized in basically two commands, to love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. That's this latter half, to love your neighbors. Jesus is testing, well, do you love your neighbor? And although Jesus confronted this man with the law, instead of realizing his sinfulness, the young man, <laughs> sincerely it seems, saw himself as basically righteous before the law, that he was justified in the, in the eyes of the law. He replies that he had kept all these laws from his youth, from the, fact, from the moment of his bar mitzvah, when he became a, a son of the covenant. But he was looking at the law and himself wrongly. This man's sincere answer reflected the, the Pharisaic view of the letter of the law. He looked at the law as merely external forms to be obeyed. That if he never murdered someone, or if he, then he never committed murder. If he never uh, actually committed adultery, he, 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 was not guilty, he was not guilty of adultery in that sense. Like the Apostle Paul, who wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, this young ruler would have said, As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. However, what this young man and the Pharisees failed to understand is what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount was that obedience was not just external, external but also internal. See, sinfulness is not a matter of just outward acts alone, 
but it's first a problem of our hearts. It's our inward hearts, and you can compare Matthew, what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 18, and 19 about that. Sadly, the rich young ruler did not see his own sinfulness. He did not see the, the sinfulness of, of, of his heart. He sincerely believed that he'd kept the law of God. And in Paul's Philippians 3, 9 terminology, this young man had a, a righteousness of his own derived from the law. But what he needed was a righteousness from God through faith in Christ. And so in verses 21 to 22, Jesus challenges the rich young ruler with a demand that exposes the reality of his heart. He calls him and demands of him to abandon all for Christ. It's 22 and 23. Look at the scriptures with me. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Now Jesus doesn't outright correct the young man. Instead, he Jesus makes this one more demand to reveal the, his heart. He tells him to sell all his possessions, and he's a, he's a rich, he's an extremely rich person, by the way, give them all to the poor, and then to follow, come follow Jesus. And when we first read this verse, we who believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, find this verse a little challenging, a little troubling. At first glance, it seems that Jesus is teaching a, a work salvation. It seems that a person who obeys the law, obeys the law, and simply sells all his riches, gives it all to the poor, and then therefore that man is that person is saved. But that is not the case in this in this place. One can sell all their possessions, give it all to the poor, and still not be saved. When Jesus says one thing you still lack, he's not saying there's one more thing to add to all this, his works righteousness. But rather, he says, here's one thing to replace all your works righteousness. What he asks of this rich young ruler is exactly to put his trust completely in Jesus. It was a test of this young man, of his recognition of who Jesus was. It was a test to this young man of where his trust was in Jesus, whether it's in Jesus or not. It was similar to God's test of Abraham in Genesis 22 when he asked him to offer up his son, his one and only beloved son, Isaac. Jesus is asking this rich young ruler to put his trust in him by sacrificing, selling all his possessions and give it to the poor. You say you love your neighbor as yourself. Are you willing to sell all your possession, give all your life and give it to your neighbors, to the poor among you? And then come follow me. It is a test of what he loves more, of who he loves more. It's a question of whether he would put Jesus first. Remember back in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus had said, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. No works can lead to our salvation, even if we do give everything away. And not every disciple will give up all their possessions. We can think of an example of Zacchaeus later on in chapter, Luke chapter 19, verse 8, who gives up only half of his possessions. Even that's a lot, but he only gives that, but still Jesus says to him that he is saved. The point is, though, that every disciple must be willing 
willing to abandon all when Jesus asks. Sadly, the rich young ruler was not willing because he loved, he, he loved his wealth more than he loved God. Matthew and Mark tell us that he went away grieving because of his extreme wealth. There are still many people today who will not come to Jesus because they understand what Jesus calls and they're not willing to give up all, abandon all, to follow Jesus. Jesus' response to the rich young ruler reveals the demands of any who wish to inherit eternal life. The one must acknowledge Jesus as God, admit that you are a sinner, and abandon all for the sake of Christ. Be willing to abandon all for the sake of Christ. And this leads us then to the, the second truth that those who wish to inherit eternal life must understand. In verses 24 to 30, we then understand or learn that the, of the difficulty of inheriting eternal life. Even having understood all the demands, one might mistakenly think that one can just do that on their own. But what we're going to find here is that, in fact, this difficult, these demands not only are difficult, they're nigh impossible. Jesus then explains and makes the difficulty, we might see as the difficulty stated in verse 24. Look at verse 24 with me. And Jesus looked at him and said, as, looked at him as he was going away, and said, and then, uh, Matthew and Mark tells that he was saying this to his disciples, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, actually, and Mark tells us that Jesus felt a love for this young man. But Jesus watches him walk away. And now he addresses his disciples and tells them that how hard it is. It is difficult for the wealthy, for the rich, to enter the kingdom of God. It is hard because wealth and riches breeds self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency in their own abilities, in their own possessions, in what they have. We all may not be extremely rich, but we all know what that feels like. In general, you don't go asking for help if you can do it yourself, if you can have the means to yourself. It's just that human nature. But when it comes to spiritual things, we will come to realize that we are not sufficient in ourselves. But yet many people trust in their own wealth, trust in their abilities to live this life. It is hard for a self-sufficient person to become, as Jesus puts it, like a child and helplessly depend upon God alone for salvation. We think that there's something that we possess that we can bring of our own to work our way and earn our way to salvation. But Jesus then illustrates the, uh, this truth with a vivid picture in verse 25 and 26, the difficulty illustrated. Jesus then says, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Jesus makes the comparison of a rich man entering the kingdom of God with basically a camel going through an eye of a needle. The Babylonian Talmud twice mentions an elephant 
passing through the eye of a needle, basically as, a, as an impossibility. So it was, a, it was not a foreign concept, this phrase. But Jesus takes the analogy and applies it to the largest animal in, in, in Israel, which was a camel. The picture is of, a, of an, <laughs> an absolute impossibility. This large, huge animal cannot go through an eye of a needle. Some have tried to soften the story by coming up with other explanations, and you may have heard them, you may have seen them on videos that were popularized. In fact, one common view that was popularized in the 18th century taught that the eye of the needle was simply a, a, small, was a, a small gate within Jerusalem um, that was just large enough pedestrians, but any animal was, would be, not be able to enter. In fact, uh, it would be, camel had to be stripped of all its burdens just to get, in order to get down on its legs to be able to get through. But almost all commentators today agree that there's no evidence for such a door uh, ever being called the eye of the needle. Even such a view lessens Jesus' point. The Jesus' point is just, is just is what it's just pictures. It's just so impossible that one has to laugh. Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven belonged to, and, uh, does not, really does not belong to anyone who thinks that they are rich. In fact, the kingdom of heaven, what did Jesus teach? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3. Those who inherit the kingdom of heaven must all come and recognize that they are poor in spirit, that there's nothing that we own, that we possess, that can gain our entrance, that we all come as beggars to God for salvation. So the disciples' response in verse 26, when, he, when understanding what Jesus is saying, that if you're rich, that's, it's difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. They said, then who can be saved? They realized the repercussion of what he was saying. For them, as well as for the Jewish people, wealth was a sign of God's blessing. It's almost like the common uh, prosperity gospel that's preached today, that if, the, that if you're spiritual, if you're walking with the Lord, you have faith in God, then the more God is going to bless you materially. But they're wrong. They're mistaken about that. For if a rich person, and so when Jesus was saying, which just blew their mind, if a rich person can't be saved, it isn't going to be saved when the, when the Son of Man comes, then who can be saved? Jesus answers the question in verse 27. The difficulty answered. But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Yes, you're right, you understand correctly. It is impossible for people to be saved in this way. He's including all people here, rich and poor, when he says that it's impossible for people to save themselves. No one can be saved on their own. Merits are on because of their own deeds or because of their own possessions. Everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. No one on their own would confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone thinks that they are the own Lord of their lives. No one on their own acknowledges that they are sinners. Everyone thinks that they're basically the good people that, that sometimes make bad choices. No one on their own abandons all their treasures to follow Jesus. See, these things are all impossible with people. But praise the Lord, hallelujah, that what is impossible with people is possible with God. Your salvation, my salvation, is only possible because God was involved in it. 
It is he who opens up our eyes to see the truths of who Jesus is. It is he who convicts us of our own sin. It is he who enables us in, to be willing to abandon all for the sake of Christ. This is why every Christian ought to be humble before the Lord. It's why we shouldn't boast about anything about ourselves because our salvation is all of God and God alone. And although our salvation is possible with God, it still doesn't make it easy. The path is still a narrow path. It is still a narrow gate. It will be difficult to continue on this path to inherit eternal life. And Jesus offers comforting words to those who then follow this path. The difficulty comforted in verses 28 to 30. Read these last three verses. But Peter, Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Peter reminds the Lord that they, the 12 disciples, had left their own homes. They left their own families behind to follow Jesus. Remember, they, they left their nets, they left their boats, they left their family, the parents, because Jesus called them to follow him just as he had called the rich young ruler to do. And though they were ordinary men, these disciples, they were examples, they are examples of the kind of faith that Jesus calls for. To follow him, Jesus calls us to forsake all our earthly treasures for him who is the greatest treasure of all. At the very minimum, we are, at the moment of salvation, we are to turn away from sin. We are to repent from an immoral relationship, from destructive addictions, from guilty pleasures, and turn to Jesus Christ, who is the greatest relationship and the greatest delight and joy. In following Jesus, though, there will be times when difficulties are faced that require us to give up those treasures that might otherwise be good that are in fact gifts from God. In following Jesus, we may have to leave homes or family or work or school for the sake of the kingdom of God. And Jesus in verse 29 then offers comfort to those who have left things behind in order to follow Jesus. It will feel like a great cost to leave your friends and family, to miss out on those family gatherings and those family, uh, family uh, uh, parties, the community, to leave your childhood home, what is comfortable, what is secure, to follow Jesus. Missionaries and ministers are called to this all the time. But Jesus teaches his disciples that you may think you've lost much when you make those kinds of sacrifices. 
But what you gain, he says, is much greater. It's far greater. Specifically addressing those who are leaving behind family and homes. Jesus promises you that you will receive many times more. Not just in in an eternity, but now in this present age. Part of that that much more that he's referring to is, is the family of God. There are people who will leave and forsake family in order to follow Jesus. And part of God's provision, part of Jesus' provision, is that he gives them a new family, the church of Jesus Christ. A family who will love them, welcome them, encourage them, support them as they follow Jesus. In the church, we, shall, we have a greater family than the earthly families that we, are, that we belong to even now and may at some point be called to leave behind. And this ought to be an encouragement to us as a church, as a Bible here. And I ask us the question, are we the kind of church that reflects the greater family that Jesus promises to those who leave home and family to follow Jesus? Do we treat one another as well or even better than how we treat our own immediate families? Can one who has left family homes behind to follow Jesus be a part of our church family here and say they have so much more because they follow Jesus? Because of San Francisco Bible? So many applications of that. It is difficult to inherit eternal life is what Jesus teaches us. In answer to, as we conclude and end, in answer to a rich young ruler's question of what shall I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus' answer teaches us that one must acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, admit that you are a sinner, and willingly abandon all to follow him. These demands of inheriting eternal life are difficult. They're not easy choices. In fact, they're impossible with people. None of us would make these choices on our own. But they are only possible with God. It is he who gives us faith to believe upon his son. It is he who gives us repentance to turn away from sins to Christ. It is he who regenerates the heart of sinful men and women so that we might be born again. It's why God sent his son to be born of a woman, to live a sinless life, and to die on the cross for our sins. He died an infinite death to pay for the penalty of our sins. He died for my sins and your sins. And while he walked on earth, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and invited all to enter in through him. And his call continues to to go forth from everyone who knows Jesus Christ. And this morning I call for any of you out there who have not yet received and believed upon Jesus Christ, who have not yet have assurance of that you will inherit eternal life, that today you might acknowledge who Jesus is. Acknowledge your own sinfulness before the Lord. 
and be willing to forsake all as you trust in Jesus Christ and God alone to save you. Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? And you can do that today just by simply praying and, and asking God, and praying and telling God that you need salvation. You're a sinner. And that you thank God for Jesus and who died on the cross for your sins and, and put your faith and trust in him. Turn away from your life of sin where you have been Lord and King. And turn to a life where Jesus is Lord and King. And follow him. And that is the way to internal life. For the rest, uh, I give you three questions for us to reflect upon. Number question number one, who rules your life? Whose will, who, whose will do you pursue in your life? Your will or God's will? Who is Lord? Number two, if Jesus were to ask you to give up everything you possess and follow him, would you be willing to do so? Would you do so? If you asked him to give, to sell all your possessions, your money, your property, and give it to the poor and then follow him, would you? Would you be willing to give up your reputation, your job, your school, your freedom even, your life to follow Jesus? Take time to think about that question. Think about those concrete treasures that you have in this life. Think about if each one were called to be given up to follow Jesus, will you trust him to do so? That leads us to the third question. Uh, if you had not yet believed in Jesus Christ, what is keeping you from trusting him? What, what treasure are you holding on to that you're not willing to let go? Will you trust Jesus to keep his promise that the reward of following him will be greater than what you give up, both in eternity and in this life? Pray that these questions will cause you to reflect upon God's word, look again, read again this passage, Understand what Jesus' answer is to the young ruler's question. And ask yourself, have you followed Jesus' instructions? Are you on the path to inherit eternal life? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. We pray that as difficult as these words are, Lord, we pray that your spirit would take them and cause us to be gripped by them, to understand them fully. Help us to live our lives, not only as individuals, but as a church in this day, in this age. Yes, to be willing to forsake all, to lose all even, to follow you. We know that there will be in the days ahead more many choices that we must make. Choices 
to follow you or not, to follow you, to do your will or man's will. And God grant us much wisdom, grant us great dependence upon you. Help us to be strong and courageous in continuing to walk the difficult path, the narrow gate to inherit eternal life. Lord, we pray that we would all, every one of us, would be willing to forsake all to follow Jesus. Help us to make sure that that is the case, that we would have the assurance of our salvation, that one day when Christ returns to establish his kingdom, or when, if earlier, we come and approach before, so we stand before your throne upon death. Help us to have made sure and ensured that we have turned away from sin and placed our faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. God, help us to this message to be the message that we proclaim. That yes, in the one sense, salvation is easy, for it's already accomplished by Jesus Christ. That one must simply respond in faith in Christ and Christ alone. But yet, Lord, we also know that it is a difficult path. And Lord, until we see your, and see your face, we ask that you help us to do so. Help us to walk the narrow way until you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful week. And we'll, uh, Lord willing, see you sooner uh, in, per in person oh. in the days ahead. God, you're dismissed. God bless.